You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast. All right, Lionel, how you doing? Oh dear, oh dear. I mean, uh, we're going to do the whole podcast in, in Glaswegian. I mean, uh, well, your your dad is Scottish, so he's Scottish um, from very close to the root, Lionel, um, from very close to a point where, well, something significant happened in today's World Championship road race, which we will discuss later, no doubt. My Scottish ancestry, that? well. My Scottish ancestry goes back a little bit further, so I, I'm not going to push it with a terrible accent, nor am I going to make a comment about the Scottish summer. I've got in trouble for that before. But there was a glimpse of Scottish summer this afternoon, wasn't there? It broke out in between the rain showers, but that was the crowd and the finish line commentary in Glasgow as Matthew van der Poel won the rainbow jersey in the men's road race, as recorded by Tom Wally, who is up there in Glasgow this weekend. He won the rainbow jersey in the Tenant Super Race, the World Urban Cyclocross Championship, the Edinburgh, Glasgow, 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 Glasgow. It was a criterium championships, really, wasn't it? It was a very, uh, well, it, it was kind of harking back to the British tradition of city centre criterium racing. It could have been a, a super edition of a Kellogg's City Centre Criterium from the 80s or the Friends Providence series. I'm sure you remember that, Daniel, from the 90s. Or more recently, the Tour series. I think I've been reflecting on this in a couple of hours since the race finished. And I think it's good that there are different flavours of World Championship road races. And I suppose if the whole point of the race is to bring the best riders in the world, the best one-day riders in the world to the fore and have them battle it out for the rainbow jersey. Well, it completely ticked that box, didn't it? I had some reservations about the course itself and about the kind of, it was a, ah, there was a a period where the race slipped into a bit of a lull and I was, I wasn't particularly enjoying it as a spectacle, but uh, the important bit of the race was gripping, wasn't it? Well, I think maybe people would have expected us to poo-poo the race and poo-poo this World Championships, but no, it was an absolute, well, it was a rip-snorter of a race. And I tell you who did enjoy it, Lionel, who will have enjoyed it, the team physiologists, because there's a lot there for them to sort of conjure with, or there will be when they look at the riders' training peaks, files and Strava files. The first Strava files have started to come in, I've noticed, um, talking of what kind of world championship it was. I think Lawson Craddock's Strava file was entitled the World Criterium Championships, he's called it. Um, talking about uh, physiologist team coaches, Fred Grapp, who's sort of the head physiologist at Group Amart, was certainly very enthused. He said, this world championship is exceptional because it stimulates very high levels of all the physical qualities exploited in cycling. Explosiveness, lactic tolerance, maximal power, threshold, endurance, and a very high cognitive activity which alters 
all physical potential, a crazy race. Um, that cognitive dimension is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we heard few riders in the days leading up to the race, uh, guys who had sort of arrived Thursday and Friday who had tested the course, talk about just uh, how dizzying it was. And uh, Julien Alaphilippe, for example, said that he had he never had any idea where he was in this labyrinth because it was very difficult to sort of orientate oneself. Um, there weren't the usual reference points that we get in a world championship. They're usually based around, the circuits are usually based around one climb, one significant climb, that then sort of remain ingrained in our memory when we think back to world championships of yore. We think back, we, we remember some of the names, don't we? The Wampers climb, for example, at Leuven um, a couple of years ago, but there have been many others over the years. And okay, we had Montrose Street here, but there weren't too many sort of strong kind of visual reference points, were there? No, they weren't really. And I suppose that is a little bit like a criterion when watching a crit on TV, uh, you sort of recognise buildings or a certain corner or a little stretch. But for the riders themselves, you know, when you have that sort of 20 minute lap, normally there's a, a much kind of slower ebb and flow to a world championship course, whereas this was frenetic. Pretty much as soon as they reached that circuit, it was just corner sprint corner sprint and i mean it must have been uh, pretty hellish to ride and i suppose that is why the cream came to the top wasn't it the best riders in the world were able to cope with that uh, relentless kind of ramping up of, of pressure because being at the back of a group of 20 was okay for a period of time until suddenly the gaps started to open and and the the effort required to close those gaps coming out of the corners became more significant as it went on and, and it was obviously going to uh, break up and come down to a smaller group of riders I suppose my reservation was once they reached the circuit and there was a kind of the first orientation f uh, phase where they were getting to grips with it the race did then fall into a couple of sort of lulls where even though the riders at the front were you know the biggest names uh, there was a sense that it was a sort of phony war wasn't it there really but uh, maybe I should just run through some of the the highlights of, of, of a quite a difficult day's racing to get a handle on uh, you know if the riders struggled to orientate themselves and work out where they were in the race I think as a spectator it was it was similar um, but Matthew van der Poel is the first Dutchman to win the world championships men's road race since Joop Jotemelk in 1985 and he adds the rainbow jersey to the one he won in the cyclocross at the start of the year I mean, pretty much no contest when it comes to assessing the best one-day rider of the year because he's also won Milan-San Remo and Paris-Roubaix earlier in the spring. Glasgow itself, well, it was the rainbow city, wasn't it? Because it was raining heavily at one point, then the sun was coming out, and then the rain came again. There, were, in fact, was a rainbow over the city at one stage. And, I mean, if I'm feeling a little bit smug, it's because in our preview... I did kind of steal Renard Scotter's point that the course and the style of racing would suit Matthew van der Poel. But I did, did also um, say... You did extremely well on the predictions. Poor Renard, of course, predicted that Jasper Philipson would win. And Jasper Philipson unfortunately cemented himself to the road at some point um, around about <laughs> when, when the main peloton came into Glasgow. Anyway, Lionel, you were saying... He did well, yeah. I, I kind of made a point that if the top eight from this year's Tour of Flanders were the top eight here, it wouldn't necessarily be a surprise. And there was that period, wasn't there, for about 30-odd kilometres where 
This year's top four from the Tour of Flanders were chasing the 2019 Tour of Flanders winner, Alberto Betiol. Uh, but as a race itself, I think the first 100 or so K, or certainly until they got to Glasgow, was a little bit more predictable and formulaic than I perhaps anticipated when we were talking about the race earlier in the week. There were the usual flurry of attacks early on, but nothing stuck until a break of nine went away, and in it were Owain Duhl of Great Britain, Matt Dinham of Australia, Harold Tejada of Colombia, Kevin Vermack of the USA, Patrick Gamper of Austria, Rory Townsend of Ireland, Ryan Christensen of New Zealand, Chris Nylands of Latvia and Petr Kellerman of the Czech Republic. For a while, there was a little counter move that had George Bennett of New Zealand in it. And the break got around seven, eight minutes over the peloton at its maximum. But of course, the big incident in the first half of the race was the protest, um, which brought the race to a halt with around 192 kilometers to go, just as they were reaching those uh, key climbs on the stretch from Edinburgh to Glasgow. Now, an organization called This Is Rigged have taken... Uh, responsibility for the protest. This is a Scottish group opposing all new fossil fuel projects in and around Scotland. So uh, perhaps predictable that the race would be disrupted, particularly coming on the back of the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, announcing that hundreds of new licences to uh, explore for new oil and gas will be uh, issued in the near future Five protesters have been arrested. We'll perhaps talk a bit more about that in the second part. Back to the race, and the leaders were around three minutes 45 ahead still when they reached the Glasgow circuit. If I run through what happened in the first sort of 50, 60k in Glasgow, we'll be here all night. There were about 100 attacks. The Belgians played all of their cards, one after the other. Remco Evenepoel, the defending champion, of course, was very aggressive. I mean, he was really eye-catching, wasn't he? Because he was yo-yoing from the front group. And then next thing you knew, he was off the back of the chase group. Then the lead group started to get caught. Kevin Vivekka of the USA went clear on his own. And there were a few key incidents that happened behind. Matteo Trentin crashed into the barriers on Montrose Street as Tadej Pogacar launched one of his first attacks. And before we knew it, the group was down to around 25 riders chasing that break. And then the last 75 kilometres, there was the Mads Pedersen attack. That forced clear the group, which contained pretty much everyone who was uh, in the thick of the action at the end. But as I said at the start, it was a bit of a phony move, that one, but it foreshadowed what was to come. And uh, when Vivek was eventually caught, Pedersen tried again, and that led to this kind of strange period where the race fell into a bit of a slumber until Alberto Betiol, former Tour of Flanders winner, of course, attacked with 55 kilometres to go. The rain fell. He opened a lead of around 30, 40 seconds. And as the rain fell, it looked like that was going to play into his hands. Then there was a crash for Jonathan Narvaez of Ecuador, which led to a split in the chase group. And then all of a sudden, we had the big four chasing Betiol. That was Van der Poel, Van Aert, Pogacar and Mads Pedersen, the 2019 world champion, of course. Behind them came Nielsen Paulus, um, Schmidt and Schoens. And, well... It was then a question of whether Betiol would be able to stay clear. As I said, the rain looked like it might give him a chance, but the four worked pretty well together. And with 22 and a half kilometres to go, they had him in their sights. And that was the moment that Van der Poel chose to accelerate. I want to ask you a question because it struck me that 
the moment that they were catching Betiol on a very Matthew van der Poel friendly hill was absolutely critical, but we'll perhaps discuss that in a moment. Still time for plenty of drama because although van der Poel opened up that gap that looked pretty much unassailable, he fell on a slightly downhill right-hand corner. The roads were wet and slippery, lots of lines on the road. And critically, he broke his shoe fastening and there was a kind of nervous time where he was trying to break off the shoe fastening. Uh, with one yank as he crossed the finish line with a lap to go, he managed to do it and he soloed to victory. Wout van Aert following in his wake in second place, Tere Pagacar in third, Mads Pedersen fourth. Uh, should say Matt Dinham of Australia, who was in that break, a very good seventh place, and Alberto Betiol probably deserved a little bit more than tenth, but a very worthy world champion. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, indeed, a worthy world champion, Lionel. Uh, not an unexpected world champion. We talked about the similarity of this course to a cyclocross course, effectively seven cyclocross courses, uh, or seven <laughs> cyclocross races, one after the other, effectively. Um, you know, just looking now at Van der Poel's Palmares, it was interesting, wasn't it, in his post race interviews the way he talked about he talked in terms of sort of completing his palmares um this of course his first senior world title he won the junior world title uh, 10 years ago wasn't it in florence um he won he's won five cyclocross world titles roubaix san remo flanders amstel strade bianca he's won a tour de france stage had six days in yellow of course at giro stage three days in pink uh three mountain bike cross-country World Cup wins and he's riding the mountain bike race this week is he not indeed yeah could double up he could and I suppose Lionel this really well consolidates his status as the best one day rider of the current generation I don't think there's too much doubt about that is uh, though there have been you know we've We've sort of oscillated between different riders as to who is, of all of these, you know, fantastic riders that we've got in the current generation, who is the absolute sort of alpha, the kind of apex predator. And and Pogacar is the, the rider that is most commonly described in sort of generic terms as the best cyclist in the world. Um, but I think in terms of one day races, classics, Van der Poel should take that throne should take that crown now and I don't know about you but I felt that of those four riders and I'll come on to Mads Pedersen in a minute because if anyone I think if anyone deserved to finish on the podium of those four it was probably Mads Pedersen with the you know the the, the Danes kind of arrived on the Glasgow circuit in hazmat suits toting blowtorches and it was quite extraordinary the way they went about the start of the start of the circuit part of the race um but i think van der poel road i mean we've talked in the past about him being not economical i thought he was the most economical of those four um he did put in one sizable attack uh, earlier on in in a, a very active phase of the race between sort of 19 70 kilometers to go um but pogacar was had his head in had his face in the wind a lot um van art also put in several accelerations although he also was supported by 
teammates for most of the race. You know, he, he had Teish Benut for a, a long period. And, and I thought the Belgians, I mean, uh, there the, the will be talk about the Belgians not riding harmoniously. And, and I'm sure, you know, Renard will be able to tell us in the coming weeks and months whether the, the sort of beef or the, the tension there was between Remco and um, Wout will flare or has flared again as a result of what happened today. Um, I thought they, they played the cards that they knew they had. Philipson, with hindsight, might not have been the best guy to sort of bring as a third prong to the Trident. Um, with hindsight, it looks relatively, well, relatively obvious that he wasn't going to contend. I mean, it was, if you look at the stats, it was by far the most selective World Championship road race of the last 20 years. Um, 12 riders only within five minutes of the winner. The, the next Closest to that was 65 riders in uh, within five minutes of the winner in 2014, and um, no other world championship really comes close. So, Philipson was was never really at the races, um, but I think I thought the Belgians rode a, a decent race. Um, that said, going back to my original point, um, Vanderpool looked like a man who had realised pretty early on that he was the strongest man in the race and he was going to pick his moment the right moment and that's what he did and I don't really think any teams any other teams any other riders can have too many regrets about how they approach things because um, strongest rider finished first the second strongest finished second and so on and so on yeah I mean the Belgians will face a little bit of criticism because that goes with the territory and they did have the five riders in play until very deep into the race, didn't they? Remco Evenepoel, but uh, and and Wout van Aert, of course, but Tish Benut, Nathan van Hooydonk, and Jasper Stoven all in there as well. And I said in the preview, and I don't want to sound wise after the event, but it did play out this way. The simplicity or the lack of complexity when it came to Matthew van der Poel and his chief teammate Dylan van Baal, who was there, but didn't really kind of go in and move you know he he might the conventional wisdom might have been get van bala up the road with in that kind of phase where the race went into its lull perhaps even do the kind of the betiol move because i mean obviously betiol was playing italy's one and only card there uh, which was a big gamble i mean fair play to him he put absolutely everything into it and for 33 kilometers he had the whole race chasing him and he made the race uh, for van der poel as much as anything you know, the Dutch didn't play the other card that they had and the Belgians were in this position where they had that embarrassment of riches almost. And yes, the um, the question of whether Remco Evenepoel or Wout van Aert was the number one protected rider, I think we had that question answered fairly early on because Evenepoel was the first to sort of open things up. Um, but sometimes having numbers uh, and outnumbering everybody else makes it more complicated, not less. I mean, witness the way the Danes rode once it was down to Mads Pedersen and uh, Matthias Skelmoser, because, you know, very simple for them as well uh, as as the Dutch. Um, so, yeah, I don't think you can criticise the Belgians too much, but I do think the key question is, the moment they caught Betiol on that slight climb, it gave Van der Poel the opportunity to hit them immediately. And there was no kind of catching Betiol, giving Betiol a chance to sit on the wheel. I mean, he was blown out the back more or less straight away. But it was the absolute perfect kind of convergence of circumstance uh, for Van der Poel 
22 and a half kilometers to go. So not a crazy distance. Um, if he, if he could get a gap, get through a corner or two, suddenly everybody chasing behind. And as, as we saw, you know, it was treacherous. Van der Poel obviously went down, um, but chasing in a group when everyone's riding on the wheels, everyone's, you know, getting tired, being out in front is a huge advantage. But I do wonder if they caught Betiol perhaps on a flatter section or, um, you know, not on a Van der Poel launch pad, it might have been quite a different um, way that it played out over the last 20 odd kilometres. I think the way the gap went out and continued to go out, though, would suggest strongly that Vanderpool was was not only the strongest rider in that group, but he was by far the strongest rider. And uh, I, I sort of think. But that would he have attacked on the flat? Would he have gone? Would he have made the same effort on the flat? He would have gone somewhere. Sure. He would have gone somewhere, and I think he would have got away. Um, or, uh, well, the, the the eventuality of it finishing in a sprint it was pretty obvious that that wasn't going to occur um because it was very obvious how exhausted how on their knees those four riders were uh, well the three riders van art and um, pogacar and pedersen and even after um van der poel's crash there wasn't really too much suspense was there for i mean he looks as though he was down for a good 10 or 15 seconds and i was sort of mentally well i was calculating that you know he would probably have 10 seconds now advantage or 15 seconds advantage and they would probably be able to see him that wasn't the case um so in fact i think the time gaps were slightly misleading i think he probably had more than the 26 or 27 seconds that we were seeing on the screen at that point and more like 40 and um that quickly went back out again and then it went to over a minute uh, i mean just going back to the belgians lionel um you know, with about 90 kilometers to go, it looked as though Remco Evenepoel wasn't on a good day and he wasn't going to be in contention at all. And he, he kept getting sort of distanced or sort of dawdling in the technical, the really technical part of the course, which is also slightly uphill around the Kelvin Grove sort of art gallery and around the kind of university. And then he, he, he was revived somehow um, from about 60 kilometers to go. And then he put in a couple of his sort of trademark moves and it did look as though he might, well, give us an action replay uh, of what he did last year in Wollongong. Then the rain started and it seemed to sort of exacerbate whatever technical difficulties he was having holding the wheels on the particularly on those intricate sections. However, I think the bottom line there as well was that he wasn't on a particularly great day. And in his post-race interview, I noticed as well, I heard that he, him saying that um, it just wasn't a course that suited him. Um, he's not explosive enough and it was the most explosive riders that eventually, well, ultimately won out. And on Van Aert, I mean, obviously this reinforces the narrative about the sort of ir- irony of him now being the Poulador in this in this rivalry with Van der Poel. Van der Poel, of course, Raymond Poulidor's the the eternal second, the eternal runner-up's grandson. Um, Van Aert's record of second places now, of course, he's, he's also won an awful lot, uh, second place in the Olympic Games road race, twice in the Worlds now, twice in the Worlds time trial, four times in the World Cyclocross Championships, although he's also won a couple of those. Um, he's also finished second to Van der Poel in the World Junior Cyclocross Championships and European Championships a couple of times as well. Um, L'Equipe this morning, slightly slightly cruelly, they called Van Aert the predictions world champion. I the man who's always predicted to win huge races and has unfortunately 
um, fallen short, um, not far short, but slightly short um, on many occasions. But it's um, it's unfortunate, isn't it? Because his consistency is extraordinary. His repertoire is extraordinarily wide. And yet um, he just happens to be riding in this time with this generation of riders um, where sort of everyone has one ability that in which he's sort of the second best or he one ability that's slightly superior to him. And, um, you know, I found myself wondering if they'd gone to the finish in a group as well, whether, again, he might have been the bridesmaid beaten by Mads Pedersen or Van der Poel. And that's just, um, well, it's part of the sort of beauty of this generation that they are so versatile. And, um, and I guess he just has to keep trying, doesn't he? You are listening to Arrive by The Cycling Podcast. Well, Lionel, we knew we'd probably be talking about the weather in this world championships um it's a bit of a well it's a, it's a bit of a cliche when it comes to scotland isn't it and we talked about it the other day how much rain falls in scotland how rotten the summers can be not always not always we should stress um however climate and climate change were topics of discussion and topics of heated if you'll excuse the pun debate today weren't they at the world championships why lionel well, that's because the race was brought to a halt for almost an hour by some protesters uh, apparently cementing or gluing themselves to the road. And it took a while for them to be removed. An organisation, as I said, called This Is Rigged took responsibility for the protest. We didn't see too much of it on our TV screens, um, which is, uh, well, I think that's significant in itself. Um I mean, first of all, sport has become a target for uh, another organisation called Just Stop Oil, who have targeted uh, a number of high-profile sporting events. And, of course, there is a significant uh, movement, um, a groundswell of uh, protest against uh, fossil fuels predominantly, and in this case, uh, fossil fuels specifically, And as I said, the British Prime Minister had uh, very recently uh, announced that some a large number of licences to explore for new oil and gas fields around Scotland would be issued. And I suppose that made the road race or the world championships in general uh, a target for protesters. Now, we don't want to go on and on about this, but I do sympathise with people who just want to watch the sport. You know, it's their hobby and uh, they want to sit down and watch the race and don't want to have it disrupted, delayed for an hour. Uh, You know, it's a little bit inconvenient. But I also think that the protesters have a right to make their point. The argument that we should keep politics out of sport is especially difficult when it comes to a world championships because world championship sport is political. You know, public money is involved in bidding for and hosting these events. Um, A world championships is by its very nature a commercial and political event. It's contested by national teams and, you know, there is a sense of national prestige attached to that. And then if you drill down into the detail, sorry, that's a poor pun, um, British Cycling is sponsored by Shell, an oil company. The Belgian team is sponsored by Esso. You know, there is a lot of oil and gas sponsorship in professional cycling. And I suppose you lose the argument that sport is not political when the British Home Office denied or delayed visas for 
Eritrean riders such as Biniam Gamai and his teammates. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of fairly sanguine about protests as long as it doesn't, you know, cause um, an incident that endangers the riders or spectators. Um, if people want to glue or cement themselves to the road at their own risk, well, that's their own risk. Um, you know, it does seem like the race itself had plenty of warning. It wasn't like they suddenly jumped out in front of the peloton. You know, that's certainly something that, you know, would instantly um, attract the opprobrium of everyone watching. But I suppose the other point I would make is that as a an event that is basically uh, the rights, the broadcast rights are sold by the UCI and there will be presumably sort of stipulations um, regarding, you know, what should and shouldn't be shown on screen. I just think that we're kind of abandoning journalistic principles by not um, showing what's going on. You know, it's the big story of that hour. You know, what actually is happening? And I understand that, you know, they won't want to encourage copycat um, protests. I also understand that, you know, that the, the flavour of protest is perhaps more in line with, with I guess, my uh, worldview than another type of protest. So uh, I guess there's a sense of sort of um, hypocritical thinking there. I could be open to that accusation. But yeah, the race was delayed for an hour. And I think that, uh, you know, peaceful protest, even if it's disruptive, uh, you know, people do have a right to make their point in that way if that's how they see fit. It's a cornerstone of most democracies, isn't it? Peaceful protest. Um, can I be extremely glib for a minute, Lionel? Was Go it, for it. Was it MAPE cement? And if so, <laughs> are we sure this wasn't guerrilla marketing, given that MAPE are a very prominent sponsor of the UCI World Championships? I think that would be an extraordinary double bluff <laughs> by the protesters. <laughs> and by the UCI, I, perhaps. Yeah, well, you know, jokes aside, I mean, cycling is kind of uniquely vulnerable, isn't it? I mean, I know we've seen people get onto cricket pitches and tennis courts and, and football pitches. And I think there was a protest where somebody chained themselves to the goalpost at a Premier League game. Um, cycling is kind of uniquely vulnerable in the sense that the road is accessible at all times. And I, I think that's where I'd be really cautious about, uh, you know, there is a very clear line between what is a peaceful, safe protest and what eventually endangers what is a fast moving, slightly unpredictable sport. I mean, people running into the road or, you know, um, again, there's got, there's got to be a sort of sense of understanding of what a bike race is in order to protest at it safely, yeah, I guess. I, I don't know how much the protesters have thought about this, but there is something sort of almost kind of poetic, or you could say ironic, um, about the fact that the only the only way you can stop uh, a bike race is actually by stopping the motor vehicles. Um, the the bikes can actually continue. I mean, the peloton could have they could have walked around mm. and the race could have continued without any delay whatsoever. And um, as I say, it's, it's symbolically, I suppose there's something um, apt in the fact that by stopping the motor vehicles, they've stopped the bike race. Well, that that point was specifically made on the ground. The riders were asking, you know, can we not just go past? And they were told, yes, you could go past, but none of the vehicles can get past. And so I suppose that's the kind of the, the big conflict um, in a sport like professional cycling. You know, cycling as a mode of transport is green and should be encouraged. And the World Championships being in Glasgow or the World Championships or the Tour de France or whatever uh, – 
plays a huge role in encouraging people to get into cycling either for sport and for their own health and fitness or for um, you know, green travel and so you know there are all of these kind of side arguments you know you couldn't have a carbon fiber bike frame without the oil industry you couldn't have a bike tire without the oil industry and and so on i i just think these are slightly red herring arguments when uh, there is a, a bigger picture argument to be made uh, uh, by um, the people who want to make it uh, but yeah i think there is some symbolism there the bikes could have got through the cars couldn't lionel should we talk about some more cycling Yes, let's, let's. Uh, what about the circuit, Daniel? I mean, we joked, uh, well, Lawson Craddock said it, so that gets us off, off the hook, the World Criterium Championships. And as I said, you know, Britain has got a fine tradition of criterium racing. There was a sense, for me at least, that uh, perhaps there were a few too many laps, maybe a bit more racing in the open countryside before getting to the city centre. As a TV spectator, uh, probably would have been better. But then... You've got to think of the, you know, the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably, of people on the roadside enjoying the spectacle there, in Glasgow city centre. There is a bit of snobbery about this as well, isn't there? In the sense that, well, Glasgow, okay, Glasgow has its own tradition, as most cities in the UK and indeed Europe do, that it has a, a tradition of bike racing. It may not be, you know, it's not Antwerp or um, Amsterdam, but, the, you know, it's produced riders, it's it's held events before. But, um, you know, the UK is still, especially the North part or the, the, the Scotland, is a bit of an outpost as far as the, the heartlands of European professional cycling are concerned. Um, and also just the sense that this is not what many of us think professional cycling should look like and it's not the reason that a lot of us do ride bikes we we ride it to escape urban we ride bikes to escape urban environments we um if we were in scotland for example as you were last year on the tour de cos um the 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 great draw of that is to glory in the wonderful scenery and landscape that is available in Scotland, which the race did in in its first half, essentially. But a crit criterion, what is essentially a criterion, sort of jars with that, doesn't it? There were other, I think, legitimate, genuine concerns. Um, we saw when the rain did start how dangerous it could be, that circuit. And I think it would have been extremely dangerous if we'd had rain for the duration of the race this afternoon. And uh, the road surfaces were not, great um i think they were pretty typical of uk roads but it was a bit of a shock to the system for some of the riders when they arrived last week um you know there was some sort of mirth about the general reaction of the french riders in particular there was this sort of out a bit of an out of context quote from uh, florian seneschal he said it's a shit is a shitty circuit um he, he sort of then went on to clarify that he meant that it wasn't you know, a, a, a typical world championship circuit. Um, Benoit Cosnefroy suggested it had been designed in a pub. And um, <laughs> that was his initial reaction. Um, and then later on, he sort of qualified that and said, actually, you know, I really like this circuit because it's, it favours explosive riders and I'm an explosive rider. Cosnefroy actually did a pretty good job um, setting up Valentin Madouas, although it was a pretty awful day for the French. Generally, uh, Christophe Laporte had a problem. He was there. He was their leader and he had a mechanical problem which really, well, made it impossible for him. And, and any rider really who had mechanical problems today was, was out 
of the running immediately, weren't they? And that was another sort of peculiarity. It's another thing that sort of jars with our kind of dogmas, our kind of received knowledge about what a bike race is supposed to look like. But that didn't make it boring. On the contrary, it made it incredibly exciting. And what is the sort of the 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 touchstone that i don't necessarily hold as dear as some other people but most people um cling to this idea that the strongest rider should win every race and i don't think anyone could doubt that that was the case today and it was a circuit it was a a circuit in addition to the way that it was raced and the way that it was interpreted but it definitely was conducive to the strongest rider winning so in that sense it was almost the perfect world championship road race i mean i did see um some of my italian friends on twitter <laughs> in the sort of last hour of the race and, and soon after the race suggesting this should be this should become a permanent sort of world tour classic uh, the senate the tenant super race and um, we should have a 270 kilometer race on the same circuit every single year i mean benoit cosrefois finished 47th out of 51 riders so he went the distance presumably uh, trying to avoid us getting to the bar too early maybe this evening i don't like, know would you agree uh, yeah, with that snobbery lionel would you agree i do actually yeah and i i'm i'm possibly guilty of it myself because there's this hangover from those criteriums you know they played a big part in me getting into cycling in the first mm. place the sort of friday night evening criterium sponsored by kellogg's held in a british city center on let's be clear a very different circuit because generally be a sort of kilometer or a kilometer and a half circuit but you know watching the the british crit riders barrel around those corners you know right turn right turn right turn again and then have a sprint at the end i remember one in in cardiff that went through the castle grounds and and sort of you know stephen roach was off the front but there was this this kind of aspect of theatre to those races you know a crit race a bit like the kind of um uh, the post-tour criteriums that that used to happen in france and belgium and holland um just after the tour de france in in the 80s uh, and before so there was this kind of sense that they weren't proper races mm. i suppose and or a different I mean, discipline having... within the wider discipline of professional cycling but does it, i mean <laughs> Let's not forget, they do have their own, they, they almost have their own, well, they have their own world championship. It's, it is almost a sport within a sport. Indeed. Yeah, well, there's a British Criterium Championship. And of course, you know, in Britain, it was a proper sport. You know, it wasn't an exhibition race like it was in Europe in, uh, you know, in August back then. You know, I can remember anecdotes from you know, Belgian riders coming over and, and saying to Sean Kelly, you know, OK, so what's the drill? You know, who's going to who's going to win? Who's going to be in the break? You know, and Sean Kelly sort of shaking his head and saying, no, it doesn't work like that here. This this is a proper race. And, and they will, you know they will race from the gun um on in terms of sort of just looking at uh, the, the 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 course and the roads particularly i mean when the rain started falling you know the the manhole covers and the the um, particularly the um the the lines on the road i mean there was a big yellow cross hatch bit at the bottom of one of the climbs where they were doing the right hander um, I was just kind of wincing at just how slippery they can become because even when we were riding around Glasgow on our Tour de Coste last year, we actually came into the city on a very wet day. We had to make our way from 
if memory serves correctly, Ibrox, home of Glasgow Rangers, up to Partick's Thistle. And it was hammering down with rain and, you know, the puddles formed in the potholes and, uh, you know, the, 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 the road felt slippery under the tyres. So, you know, but that's no different really to the Champs-Élysées. If you get any rain on the Champs-Élysées on the final day of the Tour de France, everyone is nervous about how slippery it will be. But I guess there's a difference when a world title is on the line. But I suppose the proof of the course being a success is that from about 50, 60 kilometres out, it was clear that the winner was going to be one of the best one-day riders in the world, one way or the other. And that's the whole point of the race, really. And I'd much rather have that than, you know, there have been some absolutely, you know, wretched world championship Well, I was thinking about this. I was over thinking... the last 20-odd years. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Hamilton in Canada, not a great course, not a great winner, for example. I mean, that might be... Um, a little bit Probably unfair. Probably Igor Astaloa. A while ago now. It's been Igor a, Astaloa. We've been collecting his friends of the podcast money for the last eight years and you... <laughs> <laughs> and you poo-poo his finest hour like that. Um... I was I was going to ask you about this. I should I should interject first of all that I don't think there is a World Criterium Championship. I think I've got that completely wrong. For some reason, I thought there's certainly a British one. I think there are national championships um, in a lot of countries. But just thinking back to World Championship, the World Championships of the last twenty years, you mentioned a couple of sort of stinkers there, just kind of visually as well. And um, you know that's important. We always talk about the sort of aesthetics of races, the light quality sometimes. Um, Ponferrada, I remember being a really strange one. It was a very strange place to hold the World Championships, this small city in Galicia. And there were all sorts of kind of slightly murky kind of reasons as to why Ponferrada had had the World Championships anyway. But I can remember that race kind of went through or around the quarry and it all just being very uh, sort of cycling out of context. And um, there have been some others as well, strange ones. But, you know, when I think of the best ones, the ones I've enjoyed most, they haven't been, strictly speaking, circuits in the sort of traditional sense. The Innsbruck one, I think, was one everyone enjoyed. But again, you know, that had a, a lot to do with the sort of um, the optics of it. It was a beautiful day. Um, it was what people expect Innsbruck, a city in Austria, to kind of look like. I think uh, Leuven was fantastic. Um, because of the Belgian crowds and it was a really interesting circuit as well and a sort of you know climbs that lent lent themselves to well a, a sort of stadium atmosphere um, but you know what is the, what is the perfect world championship circuit you know I mentioned that kind of that template of the the circuit with one landmark climb or two landmark climbs but in that became so predictable particularly in this kind of noughties um year after year where you would sort of uh, a host city would announce the route and you would look for the one big climb and everything had to happen on that climb or else you would get a bunch sprint and that got very very boring in the last 10 years or so we've seen the cards shuffled a little bit more and a few more um, interesting routes whereby it's often point to point starting one city finishing another with some form of circuit but not even always the same circuit repeated time after time after time so what what is the perfect route it's a good question i think actually getting away from just laps is has been a good trend and i mm. think mixing it up i think there's no problem with having a circuit that suits different types of riders that looks different that keeps us all guessing i suppose 
um, I'm talking with a sense of hindsight here because, as I say, at around about sort of what three o'clock this afternoon, I was I was feeling slightly uncertain. I didn't really know what I was watching, and I suppose you know the way it's all um, you know the way it all shook down was kind of um, reassuring to me in that it wasn't a kind of a race that we couldn't explain in a way. And I, I suppose there's something about that as well. Um, you know, we, we've often talked in the past about um, the, the the races that lead up to the men's elite road race, give us some clues about what to expect. And we've had a little bit less of that this time. And there's not, I mean, even in the run-up to the race, people were unsure. Renard was saying in our preview, he had no real idea what to expect. I mean, had it come down to a bunch sprint of, say, 50 riders, uh, obviously now we've seen the race, now we've seen the impact the circuit had, um, you know, that was never going to happen. But there was a point when just looking at the map, just looking at the roads, you know, that was a possibility. So I suppose it's about just, you know, being unfamiliar with the outcome. But then it's all completely vindicated by the identity of the riders that, that came to the fore and the way that Van der Poel won it, which was exceptional and well worthy of wearing the and, rainbow jersey for and, the next 12 months. And I think the crowds line and also the sense that the race did take place in the heart of Glasgow and it also took over Glasgow in a way that other world championships in other big cities has not. I mean, you know, when I think back to those world championships, the noughties, you know, the, the first one that I went to, Lisbon in 2001, it sort of took place on a park outside the city. No one in Lisbon would have even known that it was happening. And we've had that often. Uh, even the Florence Worlds, I mentioned the one that Van der Poel won as a junior 10 years ago, you know, it's sort of mouthwatering when you hear there's a, a world championships taking place in one of the great cities of Europe. But then when you don't see any of the um, iconic landmarks, then it sort of loses some of its luster. And at least with Glasgow, I did feel so well. It it, it crisscrossed the, the centre of Glasgow and gave people a very good idea of what Glasgow looks like and, and, and almost sort of feels like viscerally. I suppose in summary, Daniel, a very worthy world champion of uh, a podium that really reflects where we are in 2023. And, you know, when I look at the results and see that 51 riders actually finished, um, that surprised me because it looked like the race was down to kind of, you know, a dozen riders and, uh, that you know, well, half a dozen riders, really. It it didn't feel like a, a, a race that... Uh, you know, the, these guys were off the front and then there was a sort of group of 50 riding in because there mm. just wasn't. I mean, even mm. even those riders um, outside the top 25 were uh, broken up into groups. And I think that also says a lot about the, the nature of the course and just what a hard day of cycling it was for I'd them. I don't know if you saw Lionel, there were a couple of clips online. One of Tadej Pogacar sort of staggering off the bike and towards the podium area, literally having to be held up. He was so sort of dizzy. Um, I don't know if you noticed him looking... But I think as... that was all the corners. That was all the corners Yes, that's possibly the... true. Um, I don't know if you saw him, or it might have been the Tenant Super. It might have been the local brew that he'd already sampled. Um, at, one, at, one, at one stage, I did wonder whether Alberto... Betty old had a bit of a pit stop um, somewhere on the route because his trajectories were getting quite erratic um, on around some of the bends on the last lap. Um, line, I don't know if you saw Pogaccio as well as he came over the line on with one lap to go for the bell lap. He sort of looked back. Um, he looked, and I think 
I think the arch over the finish line tells you how many laps to go, doesn't it? Um, and I, I think that may have been just to check how many were indeed to go. And then as he was waiting for the podium presentation, um, he said to the UCI president, David Lapartion, he sort of put two fingers up and said it was two laps too many, jokingly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely brutal. But Lionel, the, I think 50% of the fun of the World Championship is in the, the various sort of inquests that take place in every national team in the hours and days after the road race and which we will have over the next few days. They'll start over the next few days. We mentioned Belgium. The Italians are all, always great at it. The French have got a lot to talk about. The Great Britain had a bad day, a really bad day. Um, I think a lot of people expected Fred Wright to be a contender, an outsider, an outsider um, on today's course. And he abandoned pretty early. So it'll be interesting to hear uh, what the story of their day was, um, which we will, no doubt. Well, maybe we'll check in with Renard again and find out what the story was from the boys in blue. Indeed. Lionel, we'll be back, won't we, later in the week? We will indeed, Daniel, yes. Um, enjoy, uh, enjoy a, by the sounds of it, a, a tenants this evening. <laughs> tenants? I've never had a tenants super, but maybe tonight's the night. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.